0: Holy Spirit, we invite you to breathe upon us today. Breathe into our hearts and our souls. May your word be planted in us today and bear fruit. May we be comforted and encouraged and strengthened. And may we know your heart towards us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we approach the Word of God today, we gather around the Word from a devotional perspective to allow the Word pastorally to speak into our hearts and lives. And there's no better passage to turn to for that than to Psalm 42. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Psalm 42. The psalm says, As the deer pants for streams of water, So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with a multitude, leading the procession with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? My soul, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I'm sure you'll agree that Psalm 42 is a really powerful scripture. And it's one that I'm sure many of us have turned to time and time again to find strength and comfort and encouragement in times of difficulty, that fuel to keep on keeping on. And this morning as we turn to it, we we look to draw all of those things from the passage and more as we perhaps look at it with a slightly different lens. As always, when we approach the passage, we have to do our groundwork. And as we always say, when you approach a psalm, the first thing you have to do is to read the title of the psalm, which is the small print just underneath the number that gives often the context and brings a bit of breadth to understanding how to approach it. And our psalm, Psalm 42, the title says this, for the director of music, a mascal of the sons of Korah. So the first thing we draw out from this is the mention of the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah were a group of priests who ministered before God with singing. Basically, they were the worship leaders of the day. And they kind of came to prominence in terms of our awareness in Second Chronicles 20 when they led the people of Judah in worship. If you remember when King Jehoshaphat led them into battle. And the sons of Korah led everyone in worship in that moment. And God set an ambush against the enemy. And that was a moment of glory. For them. It was a glory for God, but it was a moment in which they stepped into the spotlight, the Sons of Korah, in terms of their awareness. Now, the fact that this psalm is referenced, as been of the song of the Sons of Korah, suggests to us that this psalm was one that was probably used within public worship. It was probably used within corporate singing. It was sung together by groups of people, and that's backed up equally by the fact that it's for the director of music, or as some translations would put it, for the choir master. And this helps us to understand this psalm and really all the psalms because the psalms are songs, they are poetry put to music. And music and poetry are quite unique to other expressions because the musical and the poetic tend to have this ability to awaken feeling, to arouse emotions. And here we see that our feelings and our emotions are invoked within the psalm that is written for the purpose of corporate worship. For public singing, which suggests to us then that these moments when we come together in worship should be moments in which we allow our emotions and our feelings to be involved in those. That it's okay to let out a shout, it's okay to get excited, it's okay to weep, it's okay to cry, it's okay to be passionate because we need to bring our emotions and our feelings into our worship of God and into our expression both of Him and our expression to Him. However, the other piece of information contained within the title is this phrase, describing it as a mascal. And this phrase is the only phrase in the whole of the psalm that is left untranslated. Scripture, or this psalm, is originally written in Hebrew. It's translated into English for our reading pleasure. And all of the psalm and all that's associated with Psalm 42 is translated into English except the term mascal. And that's because translators... We're not really sure, we, I'm not a translator, the translators aren't really sure what this term means. Certainly the footnote that is attached to it, if you look down and if you're reading it in your Bible, you'll see, see it says probably a literary literary or a musical term, but we don't know fully what it means. However, we can have an educated guess because the root of the word mascal means to instruct or to make someone wise. And when we apply that to the psalm, then it suggests to us that this psalm it has been described as this to say it's wisely written or that it is written to instruct. And it helps us to understand the way that we apply that. This psalm and other psalms, that this psalm that's written for the purpose of corporate worship is also one that together we should learn from, draw wisdom from, Seek to grow as we handle it. But again, as we put all that into all the Psalms and into this one, we see that this is a Psalm that is to involve our emotions and our feelings, our thoughts. All of that is to be brought into our pursuit of Him. And in this Psalm, the Psalmist lays out for us what he's thinking and what he's feeling, he lays out for us his emotions and his thought processes. And when we see them on the page in black and white, we see that they are pretty dark, pretty mixed up. What I love about this psalm in particular is that, I don't know if you notice that often when when you read psalms, it's like, There's moments in which the psalmist can be in a difficult place and then he records that for us, and then he calls out to God, or then God turns up, then there's a breakthrough, and instantly he's in. It finishes in this note of all out worship and praise and celebration because change has come. But what I think is really special about Psalm 42 is that it kind of starts in a not so good place and it finishes in a not so good place. And that's helpful. Because often when we come into church, it's like we need to put the face on things, and everything's amazing, and everything's magnificent, and we throw up our hands, and we just praise Him again and again. But sometimes life can be difficult. Life can be hard. And we come in feeling like we carry the weight of that, and we step into the presence of God, and we leave still carrying the weight of that, and that's Okay this psalmist in Psalm 42 is facing something that we all face at times. He's facing the dark season of the soul. And there are seasons in life that can be pretty rubbish. There are seasons in life that can be pretty tough. There are times that are really difficult and there's no rhyme nor reason as to why they're difficult. There's no rhyme nor reason as to why these things are happening. It's just that that's the way it is. Moments in which everything that could happen seems to happen, everything that could break seems to break, and everything that could happen and everything that could break seems to happen and seems to break all at the exact same time. Ever get those seasons? Just three of us. The rest of you can pray for the three of us then. But today we're in good company because as we read this psalm, we find that this is exactly where the psalmist is. Now, we don't know everything that's going on in this guy's life. We don't know what's happening. But what we do know is that it isn't great. As we read his words, we discover that the psalmist finds himself in some pretty oppressive circumstances. In verse 3, he says that people are saying to him all day long, where is your God? Some translations suggest that those asking this question are his enemies. And certainly, verse 10 backs that up where he says, my bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me. Saying to me, where is your God? A few things that we draw out from these words instantly is that the psalmist is talking about foes and he's talking about enemies and he's talking about taunts. He's in a situation where he feels like he's become public enemy number one. He's in a situation where he has been verbally attacked by other people. He's facing oppression, emotional oppression. He's struggling with feeling like stuff is coming against him. And in particular, as we see from these verses, the stuff that he's facing and the stuff that is coming against him is to do with other people. Have I been in a situation where sometimes the difficulty you're facing is to do with people? Most of the time it is. Sometimes, most of the time it's ourselves, but sometimes it's to do with others. And this situation is making him unwell. He's feeling the pain of it, not just emotionally but physically, because he says his bones suffer mortal agony. It's mortal. Notice he's not saying that this principality is the problem, that this demon is coming against him, that spiritually there's this weight and curse. He says it's mortal agony. He feels pain. This is real pain. He's unwell. He's sick. And the mention of people asking him, Where is your God? suggests that something is going on in his circumstances, something around him, something real, something tangible is happening to this guy that is causing people looking on to ask, Where is your God in all of this? You hold faith and you claim faith and you proclaim your faith. But here you are going through this. Where is your God? in this that you're carrying, in this that you're dealing with. It looks from an onlooker's perspective as though God is not working in his situation, almost like God has abandoned him. These are pretty severe circumstances that he finds himself in. Stuff is happening in his affairs. People are attacking him, wounding him. He's ill either because of what's happening or on top of what's happening. And this is what's happening to him and this is what's happening around him. But on top of that, we read what's happening within him because the psalm outlines the emotional condition of the psalmist. In verse 5 and again in verse 11, he tells us his soul is downcast and disturbed. His soul is the epicenter of who he is. We believe that we are made up of three components, body, soul, and spirit. The body is the bag of bones that we live in. But the soul is the you inside that bag of bones. It's the part of you that interacts with the world. The spirit is the part of us that interacts with the spiritual. So the soul is the very epicenter of who we are. And he says to us in his very core of his being, he feels downcast and disturbed. He's down. He's depressed. Or as some translations put it, he's in turmoil. There's this inner battle that's raging inside of him with his feelings and his emotions. Almost we could imagine like his stomach is churning and his feelings and his thoughts are irrational. And it's outworking its way into his behavior because he says in verse 3 My tears have been my food day and night. Can't stop crying, can't gain an emotional equilibrium. Again, yeah, reading between the lines, it's almost as though he can't control his emotions at all. Day and night, his tears are flowing. It's like his mind and his emotions have a will of their own. And he's not eating. He's lost his appetite. He says, actually, my tears are my food. And his tears are his food. Day and night, and what we can see then is that he's not functioning. Day, we would say, is for work. Night is for rest. But instead, the routine of his life has been interrupted by the turmoil of his soul and this dark cloud that resides over him. And I'm not a medical professional. I would never profess to be a medical professional. But they tell us in basic counseling training that very often the initial signs of depression are when appetite is interrupted, when sleep is interrupted, and when the basic functions of life are interrupted all of those are called out here for this guy he's depressed and as we read that and we call that out let's burst the bubble once and for all that exists within Christian circles that says Christians should never get depressed because here's a scriptural example of a follower of God who was do you know we've all been at one, some or all of these stages at some point in our life. Those moments when it feels that like the world has turned against us, when it feels like family or friends or those who were close to us suddenly distance themselves from us or even turn on us. Or times when it simply feels that like we're oppressed. Stuff is coming against us times when the situations of life seem to turn and stuff starts happening to us and around us and we wonder, has God forgotten us? Has he abandoned us? Is he even there? We can't sense him. We can't feel him. It's like the heavens are brass. And some people seem to cope with those moments okay. There are those, isn't there, that just face the stresses of life and seem to just brush it off, accept it, and just go on with it and push on through. Whereas some of us kind of struggle and it makes us ill. It can impact our health. In fact, in some cases, it can be ill health or the health of others that cause the distress and the disturbance And soon it's not so much about what's going on around about us, but it's actually about what's going on within us. Our innermost beings become impacted and we become downcast and we become cast down and we feel in turmoil and we feel like everything within us is churning. We feel depressed and down and our moods hit a low and try as we might, we just can't seem to control them. It's like they have a will and a mind of their own and sometimes it can have a real impact on all aspects of life where in a physical, literal sense, we can lose our appetite, we can lose sleep, we can't find rest, from the battle that's raging and sometimes we can't even function or do the things so well that we once did it's like we're drowning, it's like we're in over our heads we can't lift our head above the parapet and we feel like we're in over our heads And that's exactly what the psalmist felt because he writes deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls all your waves and breakers have swept over me It's like he feels like he's in over his head. Like he's drowning. He feels like he's drowning, but he's not. Because he's still got a little bit of fight in him and he's fighting for hope twice. He says these words, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. His external circumstances are oppressing him. His inner emotional state is crushing him, but he refuses to give in on those things. He refuses to let them define him or become the definition of who he is. He refuses to settle in his struggle. Instead, he's fighting for hope. And permit me to be direct. This morning, I want to encourage you, if you're going through it, if you're battling with stuff, if you're struggling with your emotions, your health, your circumstances, don't settle in your struggle. Don't let the current season define the rest of your journey. Fight for hope. You might feel like you're drowning right now, but the very fact that you feel like you're drowning and you haven't decided that you already have shows that you're not yet drowned. There's still a bit of fight in there. Muster it and fight for hope. Fight for hope. Now, as we say that, it's a great thing to say, particularly in our Pentecostal charismaniac circles. We're like, come on, we're going to fight for hope and we're going to break on through and it's going to transform and it's going to change. But what we need to say as we announce that is that the fight for hope is not always an overnight transformation. Yeah. It's a journey. And it's a journey that can at times feel like three steps forward and two steps back. We see even from the summits. He sets out in verse 5 his fight for hope and he gets a little bit of a breakthrough. And then he ends in the exact same place as he was before. Verse 5 is the same as in verse 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. In fact, some commentators reckon that Psalm 42, Psalm 43 is actually one continual psalm and we split it up into two. And if you read it as one continual psalm, then as you steer into Psalm 43, you see that again he gets a little bit of a breakthrough and then he ends Psalm 43 in the exact same place again. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, what does that show? Does it show that you never get breakthrough? No, of course it doesn't. But what it does show is that the journey into hope can feel like three steps forward and two steps back. The journey to battle through the dark cloud into the light can feel like three steps forward and two steps back. The journey to push through into freedom can feel like three steps forward and two steps back. But here's the truth. Three steps forward and two steps back is still progress. It's still moving forward. You are not a spiritual failure if by the end of a prayer with God, you're not skipping and singing zippity-doodah. You're not a spiritual failure if you enter into God's presence, pour out your soul, tell Him what's going on, and you leave that prayer the same way as the way that you went into it. It doesn't mean that you're a spiritual failure. It doesn't mean that you're not good enough because the journey into hope is a progressive journey. And yes, God can turn around in an instant and he can bring radical change and he can bring instant freedom and sometimes he does that. But we cannot assume that the moments that he doesn't do that means that he's not working. Yeah. Even when we can't see it, he's working. Amen. Even when we can't feel it, he's working. Yeah. He never stops yeah. working. God is as much at work in the baby steps as he is in the giant leaps. So don't refuse to take the baby steps because you're waiting for the giant leap. I'm gonna say that again. God is as much in the baby steps as he is in the giant leap. So don't wait for the giant leap. Don't refuse to take the baby steps because you're waiting for the giant leap. The psalmist, he took loads of baby steps in his journey into hope. And for the remainder of the time that we have together, we're just going to outline some of those. The first thing that he did was this. He asked God, why? Verse 9, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? The psalmist is clearly addressing God here and he asked God, why? Now, there's nothing to suggest that God gave him an answer but in the questioning of God, we see something quite important. We see relationship. Samus turns towards God in his struggle. He he doesn't ignore God. He doesn't shut God out. He turns towards him, albeit he's questioning him, but in his question, he's engaging with God in his struggle. And in asking God the question about his struggles, he actually brings God into his struggles. He connects with him. And he's been honest with them. He says, God, I'm cheesed off. God, I'm, insert your own word for cheesed off. I'm frustrated. And actually, I'm frustrated with you. Because I feel abandoned. Why have you forgotten me, he says. You can hear the frustration. And here is the depths of relationship with God that we can complain to him. Now, we shouldn't ever be disrespectful to God. Susan and I were chatting about this the, the other day. We remember years and years and years ago, someone that had grown up all of their days in church, really losing his rag over the fact that someone had referred to God as daddy God and how disrespectful it was to refer to him as daddy, which is just nonsense. We should never be disrespectful to God. We should treat him and speak to him with respect and affection. But neither should we hide behind religious platitudes with God either. Because the last time I checked, he's the God that looks at the heart and examines the mind to reward a man according to their conduct. So the first place he starts is the heart. And he looks and he already knows what's going on there. So when you bring it to him, it's those moments where we come into church and we're carrying the weight of the world inside ourselves, but we slap on a smile and announce that everything's wonderful. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't make the choice to worship. We 100% have to. But we don't worship just because we're commanded to from the front or because we're told to shout or we're told to dance. Yeah. We bring our feelings and our emotions and where we are, and we let the soul breathe in His presence. We yeah. let the soul vent. We bring our frustration and we bring our anger and we bring our honesty and we bring our passion and we bring our excitement and we bring our blessings. We bring all of it before him because he already knows what's going on inside of there. He sees it. And he wants us to be honest with him. Sam has questions. And I think God might have been pleased with his questioning. Why would God be pleased with someone questioning because so, actually, his questioning is a statement of faith. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? The, the inference here is that if God had remembered him, then he would have wiped out his enemies and would have removed the situation. Actually, there's a statement of faith within there. He says, I say to God, who is my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? The the suggestion here, this declaration that he's making is actually his belief in who he thinks God is and what he believes God is capable of doing. He's calling out a statement of faith to a degree here. And faith can move mountains. When we're struggling with the mountains of life, We must never be afraid to bring our why into the presence of God. We should never be afraid to come and declare what we believe about who he is and what he's able to do versus what we see in front of us and what it is that we're having to journey through because as we do that, we actually engage with him in the midst of the struggle and we bring him into those struggles and we begin to bring the mountain-moving God into the mountain situations that are before us and allow him to work. We build faith and faith is the fuel that we need. In the fight for hope. The second thing that, God, that the psalmist does is this. He fastens on to God's love. Verse 8, he says, By day the Lord directs his love at night. His song is with me. Now, we don't know if God answered the questions that he vented before him. But what we do know that God did was this. He directed his love to the psalmist. And he sung over him at night. This is an amazing picture. In the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the turmoil... God communicates his unfailing, steadfast love to the psalmist. It's almost as though in the midst of this trial and tribulation, in the midst of this season, this testimony of the psalmist was this. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why I have to go through this. I don't know why this has unfolded on my pathway. I don't know when this is going to end. I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know why all of this is happening to me. But here's the one thing I do know, my God loves me. And we must never allow the struggles of life to determine God's love for us. We cannot allow the difficulties that we face to impact the way that we perceive God's heart for us. In the thick of it, God might not answer our why, but he does answer every single question with the revelation of His undying, unrestricted, unconditional love. That we can come to a place where we are convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We need to fasten on to His love that when we're struggling with the highs and the lows in life, when we're struggling with the present and the worries about tomorrows, when we're struggling with the demonic, when we're struggling with the powers that are coming against us in this life and in the next life, when we fasten on to His love that He's directing towards us, we are convinced then that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Even in the harshest of situations, even in the most stretching of circumstances, there is an experience of love to be found. We might not see him bring water from a rock for us. We might not see him split the waters before us. We might not see him walking on the waters and commanding the waves to be still. We might not see him raising the loved one from the dead or banishing disease from our pathway. But in every circumstance, we will see this and we can be certain of this. He directs his love towards us. He reveals his love to us. In every circumstance, there's an experience of his love to be found. And I love the way that it says at night his song is with me. And of course it's metaphor but what is the idea here? The idea here of God singing over us is of God comforting us. Like a mother or father would sing a lullaby over their child to soothe their fears at night. And to encourage them, to comfort them to a place of sleep. So God directs his love. He sends his love to comfort us in an hour of worry and stress, to soothe the churning of the soul, to bring us to a place of rest. This is the, he sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies moment, where it's like God, but it's dark and it's night and he holds us and just sings over us. But God, the darkness is all around us and he just holds us and he sings over us. But God, the the enemies are all round about and he's putting out the table and he says, pull up a chair, son. Pull up a chair, daughter. Just sup. I know, but the enemies are all round about us. It doesn't matter. Just receive from me just now. Receive the strength that you need. The courage that you need. The comfort that you need. Here in the psalm, the psalmist calls out the sovereign love, the comfort of God, even in the midst of his struggles. This morning, if you're in the thick of it, you might not see water coming from the rock or the water's been split before you. You might not see him walking on the waves to calm the storm or the miracle erupting in front of you or or the disease lifting or the demons fleeing. You might. But here's what you can be certain of. Right now, he directs his love to you. Even though the darkness is around, Even though it looks like you're surrounded, even though it looks like there's enemies to the front and the back, the left and to the right, even though there is fear today and worries for tomorrow, He sends through it all His love. Fasten on to His love. Right now, where you are, close your eyes for a moment. Fasten on to His love. If you're struggling, if you're down, if you're depressed, if you're low, hear the voice of God and hear Him say this. I love you and I will never stop loving you. I see the struggle of your soul. I see the toil and the core of your being. I hear your cries through the storms and I know the turmoil of your thoughts. And I want you to know that I see it. I hear it. I know about it. And I care. I direct my love to you. Right now I instruct and command and direct my love to pierce through the clouds that surround your soul. I send my love to push through the storm, to reach down to the lowest valley, to scale high to the highest mountain. I command my love to chase you down. In the midst of this season, in the dark season of your soul, in the struggle that you face, I ask nothing of you but to receive my love. Receive my love like a comfort blanket for your soul. Step into my embrace. Let me hold you. Let my love hold you through the storm and through the gale. Be comforted, my child. Be still and know that I am your God. And in my love, let your soul rest because nothing can separate you from my love and in my love you are safe. You are safe. Right now you are safe. Fasten on to his love for a moment. Safe. Father, right now I would ask that you would father us. Lord, we thank you that you direct your love towards us. We ask right now every heart and soul would receive an impartation of your love all over again. And that we would know that though the battle rages, though the waves batter and ram, we are safe. Help us to fasten on to the love of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. The third thing that you did, just in case you thought that was the end, There's more. There's more. Third thing he does is he acknowledges the purpose of God. He says in verse 7 Deep calls to deep, and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. In this bizarre statement, the psalmist acknowledges the sovereign purpose of God. He, He feels he's in the depths of despair. And I know that we can look at this as, and read this as the deep part of the psalmist is calling out to the deep part of God and, and we get that. But equally, we can look at this as he's in a deep place. He feels like he's in the depths and he's calling out towards the depths of God. and He feels like he's almost drowning neath the waves and the breakers. But notice who he attributes the waves and breakers to. He says to God, these are your waves And these are your breakers. Now, does that mean that God put him in that position? Well, no. But a couple of things come out from that. In calling them God's waves and God's breakers, he's actually acknowledging the sovereignty and the power of God over them. He's like, You can own these, you're so big and so powerful. You, you are the God that controls the wind and the waves. You are the God who walks in authority over the storm. You're the God that has power to bring change and power to help endure in the midst of all of this. But equally in calling them God's winds and breakers, he's acknowledging that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. He's calling out here that even though he doesn't understand why he's going through this, he knows that God has purpose in this because in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. He works in every situation for the good of his people. Therefore, these are his waves and his breakers because they will conform to the outcome that his purpose deems for this situation. He's working in every situation. And it's such a recognition that although we can't understand it, although we don't get it, we believe that in every situation, God has a a purpose. And in that situation, he will and he is working out that purpose. Such recognition is important in the fight for hope. It's when we say to God, these waves and breakers that are crashing against my soul right now, they are your waves and they are your breakers. Because actually, I hand the ownership of this storm over to you. I surrender the outcome of this to your sovereign purpose. You're at work in every situation, so I know that this situation won't take me out. Your calling and your purpose on my life means that this situation is going to conform to what you have mandated because you're in control. You know, some of us need to hand our waves and breakers over to God. Some of us need to hand ownership of the storm and the situation over to Him. Because all too often, when we come into these kind of situations, we're very good at coming before him and telling him all about it just in case he didn't know. We tell him what's going on and we tell him what's happening and we tell him how he should fix it. And then we seek in our strength to go in and try and turn the situation around. When in actual fact, what we need to acknowledge is these are his waves and his breakers. We hand them over to him and we go, Do you know what? You're in charge. So. You work this out whatever way you want to work it out. But I know that the outcome of this is going to match the calling and the mandate that you have for my life. The purpose that you've outworked. Some of us need to hand our storms over and give him ownership. Let me push on. Fourth thing he does is he instructs his soul. Throughout the psalm, the psalmist repeats the same phrase that is central to the psalm and central to the next psalm. Why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Here the psalmist reveals actually a very important step in the fight for hope. And that is to begin to instruct the soul in the things of God and the truths of God. The famous theologian, Martin Lloyd-Jones, spoke about this principle in his book entitled Spiritual Depression. And he said this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but there they are talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing the the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, oh my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him, so he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. This actually is a really important principle. What Lloyd-Jones is talking about here is not talking to yourself, as in, you know, having a wee conversation to yourself, those approaches can see you in an institution. But what he's talking about is about instructing your soul. It's about replacing the messages of the soul with the messages of the truth and the word and the power of God. It's instructing the soul that those are the messages that the soul is to follow and the soul is to adhere to. The psalmist says, why are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me, soul? And then he gives his soul an instruction in accordance with his knowledge and his faith in God. He says, here's what you have to do. soul: put your trust in God, put your hope in him, for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. This is powerful declarations of faith. He says, he is my God. He says, he is sovereign in this moment. He is almighty. He is powerful. He is in control in this circumstance. And not only is he the God of my situation, but he is my savior within it. He is my salvation. He is my deliverance. He is going to be the one that saves me from what I'm going through. He's going to be the one that's going to deliver me from what I am journeying through right now. The psalmist makes the most amazing statements of faith that are based upon the truth that he believes about God and he instructs his soul to receive, to accept, to behave in accordance with those truths. In the dark seasons of the soul, in the fight for hope, sometimes we have to stop listening to messages of the self. And instead, change the message of the soul and instruct the soul that it is to accept, receive, and behave in accordance with the truth of God that our faith calls out. He is our Savior. He is our God. And He who is almighty and sovereign and everything, He who is our deliverer, He is also faithful. He who began the good work is faithful to complete it. So He will deliver us and he will set us free but notice importantly three times in two psalms the psalmist repeats the same thing word for word three times in two psalms he has to remind himself he has to speak to the soul again And speak to the soul again, which shows that this isn't a name it and claim it impartation thing. This isn't a one-off, snap of the fingers, transformation thing. This is an ongoing process and journey. He reminds his soul. And he reminds his soul again. And he reminds his soul again. Often... As we journey through seasons, we have to keep on saying, no, 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 that's not where my thoughts are going. I'm going to bring my thoughts back to where they should be. No, 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 that's not who I am. That's who I was. I'm going to remind my soul of who I am in Christ. No, 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 that's not the way I walk. That's the way I used to walk. I'm just going to remind my soul again of the way that I now walk in Jesus. Sometimes we have to continually throughout the seasons of the soul remind ourselves. Sometimes we have to continually throughout the entirety of our walk in faith remind our soul time and time and time again. And I'm not saying this to have a go at people that are all name and claim and all that stuff. I'm saying it to lift from us the guilt of of condemnation and the burden of I've done that and nothing has happened. That doesn't mean that you're a failure. It doesn't mean that you're less of a Christian. It doesn't mean that he's not at work. Time and time again, we have to remind ourselves. Time and time again, we have to instruct ourselves. Time and time again, we come back and we go, hang on a minute, soul, listen. Here's what the word of God says. Yes. Let me give you the final steps really quickly because time has gone. The fifth thing that he does is he testifies. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with a multitude leading the procession with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. The psalmist takes time to remind his soul of past experiences of God. He relives his testimony. And sometimes that which ignites hope It's to look back over the journey of faith and to remind ourselves of the times that God has worked and the times that God has moved, the moments that he broke through, the moments that he turned up, the moments that he released healing, the times that he set us free, delivered us, transformed us, the times that he brought peace and released joy, the times that he just did a God thing at the exact moment that we needed a God thing to happen. It's so important that we testify to the soul because in doing so we bring hope. It's so important that we look back on the journey that we have come thus far and recognize what God has done thus far to therefore encourage us and excite hope that he's going to do even further as we press on in and we press on through. Testifying to the soul is important in the fight for hope. The sixth thing that he does very quickly is he thirsts for God. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with him? In all of his struggle, in all of his turmoil, the psalmist has developed a hunger for God. A thirst. He's desperate. And maybe it's the extent of the situation that has brought him here, but that doesn't matter. He is desperate for God to do something. And sometimes God uses the dark seasons of the soul to wake us up from our complacency. Sometimes God uses the dark seasons of the soul to build a fresh and all-out dependency upon him, to awaken a hunger and a thirst, to take a fire that is its embers and fan it back into flame. But what we have to highlight is something really important. It's actually a huge step in the fight for hope. Because another possible translation of the end of verse 2 is, when can I go and see the face of God? All too often in our struggles, we are just hungry for God to do something, to change, to deliver, to set free, to heal, to help, to rescue, to save. And in doing so, it's not wrong to do so, but in doing so, what we seek is His hand, When in actual fact, what we should seek is his face. Seeking the face of God is key to freedom from the struggle. Because when we seek intimacy with him, when we seek to find him afresh, not just his actions, but his heart and his character and his nature, when we find him, we find what we need to endure what we face. When we seek him in the struggle, the struggle could last days, weeks, months, or years. But when we seek him and we find him, it doesn't matter how long it lasts. We've got what we need to keep on going. We've got what we need to keep enduring. When we find the table that he sets in the presence of the enemies, and our focus isn't, God, would you deliver the enemies and smote them and smite them? But God, could I just commune with you? Could I just fellowship with you? We find all that we need. And actually in that place, that's when miracles happen. That's when deliverance takes place. And often the deliverance and the miracles and the change takes place before we've even noticed it because it's not about seeking the change, it's about seeking him. The psalmist takes baby steps. He engages with God in his struggle. He's honest. He questions. He asks why. He fastens on to God's love. His situations are ever-changing, but that which is unchanging is the love of God towards him. He connects with the purpose of God. He acknowledges God's purpose in everything, and he hands ownership of the situation over to him. He instructs his soul He seeks on a continual basis to change the message of the soul to the truth of God that his faith outlines for him. He testifies. He recalls the past breakthroughs and the God moments and he builds hope and and, and expectation in his innermost being and he seeks the face of God in the midst of the struggle. And in doing all of those things, actually he does one further thing that's really important. He pours out his soul. He empties the contents of his soul before God. The pain, the worry, the stress, the strain, the turmoil, the uncertainty, the fear, the what-ifs, the upset, the emotion. He empties himself before God. Do you know, before God can heal us of the contents of our souls, we have to be ready to empty those contents before him, don't we? We weren't designed to carry that kind of baggage and that stuff in our innermost being, he wants us to release that stuff so that he can release us from that stuff. I think this is quite key for some of us to understand. We need to release the stuff in the soul before God. Before God can release us from the stuff that is contained in the soul. Deliverance freedom isn't always about making the command and binding and banishing, there's times in which that's important but it's not always about that directive authority it's the first place of deliverance is coming and saying here's all the stuff I've got, here's all the pain I carry, here's all the baggage and I just lay it down before you and I ask you to set me free that's when he sweeps in with such beautiful authority and brings lasting deliverance. This morning, it's time to fight for hope, to take the baby steps on our journey. It's not always about the big leap from brokenness to celebration. We just take the baby steps towards wholeness. And God steps in and he does the rest so supernaturally and beautifully. This morning, let's follow in the baby steps of the psalmist. Let's engage with God in our struggle. Let's fasten on to his love. Let's connect with his purpose. Let's instruct our souls. Let's testify on what he has done. Let's seek his face. and Let's pour it all out before him so he can come and bring lasting change and freedom because he is faithful.